This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Carol Cadwallader, who recently was uh, speaking in the Glad Festival in the Senev. Good to see you in Cardiff, Carol, because I think you were actually brought up in the city, weren't you? I was, just outside it, yes, in a little village, Peterson Superili. But I've spent many, many times, yes, marauding the streets as a teenager, going up to no good. Yeah, you were, you were actually born in Taunton, I think, weren't you? Yeah, nearby, yeah, Wellington, actually, in Somerset, yes. And then we moved to Wales. My dad is a true Welshman. He's from the Swansea Valley, and he very much wanted to return to his roots. So I think I was four years old when we moved here. Because the surname is a, is a it, venerable old Welsh it name, It certainly isn't it? is, I know, exactly. And I've been... I didn't actually know, but people were telling me... I, some, some time ago, somebody pointed out on Twitter, they were like, you know it means battle leader. So I kind of have taken that as a <laughs> great compliment. So what, what was your dad's profession then? My dad worked for, it used to be called the, the National Conservancy Council, and it became the Countryside Commission for Wales. Oh, so right. it was about, he had studied botany um, when he was younger. He, was the, he grew up in the Swansea Valley. He was very much the first person in his family to go to university. And he studied, yes, zoology and botany, and so he was into the plants and the animals and protecting them. Did you follow his uh, footsteps in terms of that particular attitude? Well, I was, he was, I did, I do, I'm pretty good on knowing the names of wildflowers, I have to say. No, I did consider when I was at school, I did, I really enjoyed sciences and I did think about doing them at A level. But then I thought, no, actually, I very much, I loved English literature. That was my favourite. So that was what I decided I wanted to do at university. So you studied at Oxford? I did, yes. Did you have to read Beowulf and things like that? I did have to read Beowulf, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's it. it was at, a bit of a shock. At what stage did you decide to go into journalism? Were you involved in journalism at uh, Oxford? I was really put off at Oxford. I, did, I was actually in the... Uh, I was really put off initially because it was sort of these people who... It was then, and it still is now, incredibly public schooly. You know, I came out of um, you know a very ordinary, comprehensive school, and I kind of landed in this world where these people were very confident, swanning around, and apparently just like knew how to edit a newspaper or how to write for one. And and so I found that really off-putting. And then when I, it was, I think it was in my final year, some friends set up a, a a new one, and so I did start writing for them. You know, I was very, I very much, I really loved writing. I knew I wanted to do writing of some sort. I started off actually doing travel writing. So when I left university, I was really wanted to go travelling. And I had this sort of, you know, notion about how amazing it would be to go travelling and to, like, write about it. So that's what I did for a few years. I wrote for guidebooks. You wrote a book about um, Lebanon, didn't you? I wrote a book about Lebanon, and I, I travelled around the ex-Soviet Union and wrote about that. 
and I did another one. I did contributed to one on Prague. Yeah, I did a sort of number of different things. And in the meantime, I earned money from working as a tour guide and a rep and all sorts of things like that. I gallivanted. So when did you get your first job in the newspaper? So I think, I was trying to figure this out, I think I was 25 or 26. So I was a bit, I was a bit elderly to be a graduate trainee, but I was very lucky because I applied to be a graduate trainee on The Telegraph. And I think I might have, you know, pretended I was a bit younger. Who knows? Can't remember now. But anyway, I got onto their graduate trainee scheme and they sent me off to Newcastle. Trinity Newspapers had a training scheme there. That's right. So I did that and then I came back and I was with the Press Association for a short time and then I went into the Telegraph's newsroom as a cub reporter. And I think you were there at the same time as Boris Johnson. That's, I know. Did it's you just, ever cross his path? He was the sort of star. He'd just come home from Brussels. Where he used to make up stories. Yeah, he, that's right. He made his, Boris Johnson made his name in Brussels for the Telegraph, making up stories literally about bendy bananas. And then he came home and he started writing comic pieces. And he was the sort of, you know, he was the kind of star. And I was very much the, the lowly cub reporter. And he was very indulged. Everybody thought he was terribly humorous and, you know, what a great fellow. Look where that got us. Were you in tune with the Telegraph editorial? No, I found it really difficult. But the thing about the Telegraph was, is that it was funny because my dad did read it when I was young and, you know, his politics weren't in line with it, but he he was always like, it's a bloody good newspaper. And it's true, when I got there, the newsroom was really, really good and it was stuffed with people whose politics had nothing to do with the Telegraph's politics. But at the same time, you very much had an impression there that to, like, get on... You like it helped to be male and from a public school and to be right wing and so I, I didn't see much of a future there. I have to say, yeah. It used to be well known for quite salacious court stories it where did. they would go into even yes. greater detail than the tabloids. That's right, and the marmalade dropper they were called because they exactly had this sensational detail. And it's just it's I find what's happened to the Telegraph really sad because it sort of politics have subsumed its reporting and it just doesn't have that independence that I think it used to. Then, presumably, you went off to the Guardian Stroke Observer at some stage. I took voluntary redundancy. So during one of those, newspapers are always laying off staff, and it was one of those. And so I was able to go with a bit of money, and I used that money and that time to write a novel. That's what I did next, called The Family Tree, which feels like a very long time ago. And do you want to do fiction for a time? Yes, I kind of like, it was just a challenge. You know, I loved reading novels, so I sort of thought, well, I just want to see if I can. And it was this kind of like, you know, real intellectual challenge. I think it was quite well received, wasn't it? It was. I was very lucky. It was, I had a sort of good deal here and in the States. But then essentially I kind of had the option of writing a second one and I had a deal for it. And But I just, I re- the thing I really enjoyed about reporting was that you go out into the world and you talk to people. Those people tend to be more interesting than you are. So I, and I had this opportunity to sort of start working at The Observer. And that for me was very much a sort of dream job. 
So to be a feature writer and write about all sorts of different things. And I love The Observer. It's just always had this great spirit. So I was just really happy to, to sort of land that job there. And you weren't actually a political specialist as such. No, I've never been. And I very much enjoyed... You know, I did news when I was starting out and I didn't want to carry on doing news. I found it it's really fast-paced, it's really competitive, it's very macho and it just wasn't the kind of journalism that I wanted to do. And it's funny because doing this has sort of forced me back into it and I found it still very competitive and very macho and kind of very stressful. But it's also necessary, so that's why I've been doing it. But, you know, I used to write about politics, but from a, you know, I'd write comment articles or I'd go to a conference and write something... But, yes, being kind of plunged into this world of both technology and politics and being trying to navigate the cusp between the two has been really interesting because everybody hates you. The technology companies hate you. The political parties hate you. My my enemies are, like, manifold, multiple and various and... You know, very cross with me, mostly, at all times. How did you actually get involved in this mammoth story? So I got involved in it because I had actually, in uh, for the Observer writing features, I'd been writing about technology for quite a long time, for about a decade, really. But very much from this, like, most technology reporting was for by-technology reporters for people interested in technology, whereas I was doing it very much from this sort of layperson feature angle. I just, in the run-up to the US presidential election, there was just all this weird stuff happening, particularly around, you know, the WikiLeaks stuff. You know, they'd, like, stolen those emails and then they were leaking it out. And I just sort of, I just thought it was just really interesting. There were these different things going on. And I was like, you could see how technology is just changing politics. And, you know, we talk about how technology disrupts industries. And I was like, oh, it's really interesting because it's disrupting politics. You know, and if it's disrupting politics, it means that it's disrupting democracy. Who do you think was the first person really to exploit that That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, people say certainly the Obama campaign, they certainly realised the power of the technology and they really figured out what an amazing tool Facebook was. But what they did, which is a really key thing to remember, is what they did was legitimate. It was They did it with people's consent. They weren't doing this stuff which was behind people's back without them realising. And there's a really, really key difference there. And then the other people who were really smart and on it and understood the power of this was Russia. And really that happened because, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine And it didn't just invade them using normal troops. It also had this new technique called hybrid warfare. And hybrid warfare sounds, you know, kind of very sort of space-agey, but it actually means that it means as well as sending tanks across the border, you also (laughs) send Facebook posts. You also send memes and ads and trolls And it's like, as well as waging a war on the ground, you also wage a war in cyberspace. 
And so they also realised the power of this technology and of the platforms. And, and that's what's so interesting about what happens in 2016, because you see these kind of two things collide. You see domestic campaigns realising that they can exploit these tools in all sorts of ways because there's no scrutiny, all happens in darkness, there's no record, nobody knows who you're targeting or how much money you're spending or what you're showing them. But you can also, what with the other thing we saw is that Russia also, um, and this is all laid out, so Robert Mueller, who is the special prosecutor, he laid it all out how Russia very deliberately set about using Google and Facebook to wage what he calls information warfare. And it did this with Facebook ads and other things. And this is done to what end? It's done to just it's done for just to dis, just to create chaos and have it. It's not like the whole thing, you know, the whole thing with Russia, it doesn't it doesn't want one result or the other. It just wants chaos and polarization and division and that just makes us weaker. And that's you know for whatever, you, you can look at all sorts of factors behind what's happened, but one thing we know about Brexit is it, you know, it's polarised us and it's made us weaker. And the one thing we know about Brexit is that it's going to weaken the European Union and it's going to weaken our place in the world. And whether, you know, I'm not going into the evidence here, but it definitely benefits Russia, that. Because the extraordinary thing is that um, Russia is run by somebody who's a former senior KGB official, so he comes from a communist tradition, and yet he's now, at one might argue, the opposite end of the spectrum, although I suppose there are elements of Stalinism in the way that he behaves, and yet he's in league with people on the far right in the West. Yeah, well, it's the thing, far right and far left. I mean, there's not any division between them, there really isn't. In any case, with... with um, Putin, I don't, does he have any politics? You know, it's not really about politics, it's about power. And I think that's sort of a different thing, really, isn't it? Boris Johnson can say the same thing, frankly. Does he have any politics? You know, the pro immigration, <laughs> one nation Tory, who we now see, you know, now make statements about women looking like letterboxes. I, I mean, does that, is that, does he have any political principles? Well, I mean, it was evidenced, really, wasn't it, when before the referendum, he actually wrote two comment pieces from both yes, sides of the argument. Yes, exactly, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. almost as a whim decided to go yeah. with the Leave camp. Well, that's right. I mean, that's what kind of Eton debating society, no doubt, left him fit for, isn't it? Yeah. So you you really came at this from the sort of technology angle, but then you found yourself drawn into some really quite sinister stuff. What was, as things went on, I mean, you were spending an awful lot of time at this, I imagine, and you were meeting people that you wouldn't imagine that you'd be meeting. And uh, yes. what was it like getting immersed in all of that? It was really weird. I mean, the kind of year before, there was a year after I met Christopher Wiley, who became the Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, the guy with the pink hair. And it took me a year to kind of like, for us to like figure out how to get that story out and on the record. And that was a really, really difficult year. It was very dark, very troubling. Lots of weird stuff happened. You're always paranoid, and you were kind of rightly paranoid because there were all sorts of people, you know, looking out for what you were up to, and they still are. It's definitely a murky world that I didn't expect to be tied up in. 
you know, you hold on to the fact that most people are like honest and decent and aren't like that. And that's the that's what I think we've all got to hold dear, really. Well, we're not like Boris Johnson. We do have principles, most people. But that's the strange times that we've come into, isn't it? Really, mm. where the society norms, political norms, mm. where we've got a sort of largely unwritten constitution. It's always been taken for granted that people yes. are going to play reasonably. Yes, exactly. And that's why there's such a parallel between what Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are doing now in Parliament and what they did in the referendum. Because the rules in the referendum were exactly that, that you uh, we kind of had this reporting system based on trust. So you only had to report your spending afterwards. And so it's just ripe for somebody who's like unscrupulous and feckless and doesn't mind about breaking the law. Bingo. What a fantastic opportunity that is and we you know and that's what they're doing to the constitution it's like if it's not written down well sod it we'll just break it because of course if we look at the way in which the money was spent in the run-up to the referendum a lot of money was spent in the last week wasn't it yes Um, and it was very targeted it was these people that you've described as persuadables yeah that's right so these are people who as a consequence of having got hold of information from their Facebook usage, it's possible for somebody with a political motive to say these are the very kinds of people that we're going to be able to target and persuade to vote in a certain direction. Well, we still, there's still so much we don't know about that. So we, we don't know where the information came from to target them. You know, we know that they got data from all sorts of different sources and some of which was, you know, legal and some of which I think probably wasn't legal, but we're, we're still, there's so many questions hanging over it. But yeah, people were targeted and then, you know, they were selected and they were profiled and then they were targeted with not just Facebook ads, but Google ads, with videos, with all sorts, with like billboards in the street, by even, I think they even were doing things on the pavements outside people's houses. I mean, it was sort of 360 informational dominance so it's really, really not like our normal conception of politics, where you're given a, you know, a party puts out a manifesto and then it tells you about it and you make your choice. You know, this is about this is about dominating the entire informational space around you. It's propaganda, and that is a really, really different thing. And it's a mixture between material, which is in some cases factual, in some cases opinion and in some cases just straightforward lies yeah exactly because it was again it was a that's a dominic cummings loophole he discovered that there's no you can't say um drinking coca-cola is going to make you more sexually attractive because that's a lie and we have laws against that but you can say if we leave the european union we're going to give 350 million pounds to the nhs which is a lie, but it turns out there's no laws around lying in political advertisements. So Mr. Loophole, you know, like exploited it. But in fact, there were some loopholes that he couldn't get through, and we do know that spending limits were broken. We know, yeah, exactly, because of evidence, essentially, that Shamir Sani, that brave, very brave whistleblower, brought forward. We know because of that, yeah. Why is it that no prosecutions have taken place? Well, the matter is still with the Metropolitan Police, so let's see. I have zero confidence in that investigation, and I would urge people in Wales to demand that Welsh police forces look into what is going on with these investigations. Um, That's already happened. 
So Arvin Jones, who's the North Wales Police and Crime Commissioner, he has said he's asked for the association of um, police commissioners to write to the head of the Met Police to get some answers. So I very much hope that he does that. It's worrying. I mean, do you think there's political interference in the police? I don't know if I'd go as far as interference, but I think that they actually gave this answer to a journalist that these are politically sensitive cases. It's like that. Who wants that one? You know, kick that one down the road. Or let's just, let's just leave that one for a bit, shall we? You know, let's not put the officers on. I don't know. I mean, it's made me very cynical and very despairing of our institutions, I have to say. But maybe they will step up. Who knows? In terms of the way in which Dominic Cummings ran that Vote Leave uh, campaign, and particularly with reference to this business of seeking to persuade these persuadables in the very last period of the of the referendum campaign. I mean, some people say, and I know that this point's been put to you uh, on previous occasions, on numerous occasions, um, oh, you know, I, I'm not the sort of person who's going to be influenced by this uh, information. Um, and yet, it's not everybody who is influenced, but it's a particular kind of person, a particular demographic that they're looking for. Yeah, it? that's right. They don't want to. Like, if, you, if you're a kind of... So, if you take the referendum, if you were, you know, a, a, a very much a stalwart Remainer or a stalwart Lever, you're of no interest to any of these campaigns. They're deliberately going to try and find you to exclude you from their um, target universe because why waste money sending you a Facebook ad? There's no point. What you're trying to do is just find those very few people who haven't made up their mind and trying to figure out what they look like so you can find them and also figuring out people who don't necessarily vote and trying to find them in clever ways. So you're not the audience, so forget it. Okay, you didn't see those ads and even if you did, they wouldn't work on you. No, I mean, that's that's the way that we know that it works. You are not the target. There's some considerable irony, isn't there, in the fact that people like Dominic Cummings, people on that side of the argument at the time of the referendum were talking about how Britain was being dominated by the EU to the extent that it wasn't able to make its own laws and that parliamentary sovereignty didn't exist in the UK any longer because a lot of the powers had been subsumed into the EU. And yet, when Dominic Cummings was being held to account by a select committee, he yes. refused to turn up. Exactly. It's nuts. Exactly. Restoring oh. sovereignty to the British Parliament which the man who masterminded this campaign refuses to answer to. It's absurd. But you've written about that. But, the, I mean... But this is the thing. It's nobody's held to account anymore. I mean, nobody is held to account. I mean, the fact that you can be... You can, your campaign can commit massive fraud. You know, the biggest electoral fraud for more than 100 years, we believe. And then go on to be Prime Minister whilst the police is investigating that. I mean, come on. This is, this is not normal times. What do you think it is that has made that possible, Carol? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Is it that not enough people are writing about it? Or that the BBC Yeah, so that, it? in terms of like the outrage over that, yes. I mean, there was a real problem there because it goes back to this, the fact 
the institutional problems, the fact that our press isn't independent, it's very right-wing, most of it didn't report on it, and then there was this particular problem that the BBC elected not to report on it. So it meant there was no outrage, so it meant that there was no pressure, so yes, that was definitely a factor in it. And then, but more generally, I think there is just a problem here, and in America, and in other countries, that... I don't know, it's just this thing of, of people just getting away with it. And actually, the really, you know, really infuriating and worrying thing is the fact that it, it appears, you know, I was reading about these focus groups they're doing at the moment, and apparently that's really popular, the fact that, like, Boris Johnson broke the law to close Parliament. Um, makes him more popular. Just makes him more popular. I mean, it's a great strategy. It worked for Hitler, and it worked for Mussolini, and it works for populists around the world. I mean... Bravo, well done. I mean, you know, be proud. So what can ordinary people do to resist? Be alarmed, be indignant, be not angry, but be determined that we have to hold power to account. You've had to be pretty resilient yourself, haven't you? Because you've been subject to a lot of abuse and a lot of nastiness. How far has that gone? Um, it's just depressing. It's really depressing. It's just, um, it's, yes. But, you know, I, I kind of said this earlier, which is that if they're going after you personally, it means that they've run out of facts. They've got no argument. So all they've got left. So it's pretty pathetic. Has it been quite nasty, though? Have you, has it upset it has, you? It has been nasty. It does upset me. Um, it is difficult. It's made my life more difficult. I kind of... I was a very private person before this. I've had to put myself out there to try and get attention for the story and it's involved being exposed in a way which I don't enjoy and don't feel comfortable with. And, um, yeah, it's taken a toll. How do you see this whole political situation being resolved? Um, I don't think it's going to be resolved. I think we're just in a place where we're becoming increasingly more polarised and that's going to continue because politicians can see how to exploit it. And we're very vulnerable. The Silicon Valley platforms, which make this possible, aren't controllable, <laughs> refuse to come to Britain, um, are beyond reach of law. <laughs> um, so, no, I don't think it's going to get resolved, unfortunately. But, you know... I mean, it's certainly the case, isn't it? I mean, to pick up on one point that... I mean, I read a story, and you've alluded to it in the talk that you've made uh, at the festival, uh, to the fact that in any trade agreement negotiations, there would be pressure from the United States for the British authorities not to seek to regulate big tech organisations like Facebook and Google. And I've seen that explicitly stated, I'm sure that would be the case. Why do they have such power over the American government? I mean, obviously, Trump is in charge of the American government at the moment. It's because the thing is about Google and Facebook and the big tech platforms is they were funded with defence money and they are part of the US's defence apparatus. So they're kind of too, you know, they're too necessary. They see it as a bulwark against, you know, the power of China. And, you know, it's very much part of how the US, you know, sees its place in the world and how it defends itself. And so, yeah. Because what is very interesting is that Cambridge Analytica, the company that you've exposed, is a subsidiary of the SCL group, which has yes. got military connections. And I, 
I see in one of the pieces that you've written, you've referred to how they had contracts with both the UK's Ministry of Defence and the US's Department of Defence, and that their expertise was in psychological operations known as PSYOPs, uh, which is changing people's minds not through persuasion, but through informational dominance, a set of techniques that includes rumour, disinformation and fake news. And I think the thing is here, isn't it, that a lot of people, an increasing number of people, are not actually accessing mainstream media anymore. Yeah. But they're just getting stuff from yeah. these sites yeah. so that their whole perspective on the world is determined by these people who are feeding them this stuff. I mean, it's very dangerous. And we've got no idea where that comes from. So you've got no idea who's behind those posts or those tweets or whatever. And it's very easy for all sorts of bad actors, including foreign governments or whoever, to put fake news, false information, you know, falsehoods, propaganda out there. And, you know, it's on the same platform that you look at your friend's baby pictures or, you know videos of cats falling into a toilet so it's really confusing and it's too difficult for any of us as individuals to be able to understand what's going on and that's why we need to you know really clamp down on these companies and toughen up our legislation in terms of our elections. How would you regulate Facebook? Well as I say I've banned them from having anything to do with elections in Britain forget it how could you do that? You're just like, that's it. You, this, the, the, we we, we um, make it illegal to carry um, political advertisements. That's a tough problem, you know. I mean, you could certainly do it in, ahead of, the, you know, the six weeks before an election. And, there's a, you know, it's difficult because it's like, what is a political advertisement? But at least it's a start. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do. And you can also, as well, there's even... We have laws which just need to be implemented. So, for example, after the Christchurch massacre, there were all these videos... There were thousands and thousands and thousands of them on Google and on Facebook and on Twitter where this video was spreading of, you know, this man killing people. You know, that's a crime in Britain. You know, it's a crime to incite violence. We have laws. You know, we've just got to enforce them. And Facebook and Google couldn't control what was being uploaded to their platform. They should have turned it off. They should have turned off the upload thing. You know, there are is this these excuses of they can't control this is not good enough, and it is harmful and it is doing harm. And you know, we just we you know we just shouldn't tolerate it. They, of course, are responsible for effectively robbing legitimate news organisations of a huge amount of revenue, aren't they? Yes, yes. I was talking about some of that today, actually, because it's been a very key part of it. And, of course, uh, we have seen in newsrooms across the yes. UK massive cuts. Massive cuts. There's so few journalists. It's, like, really, really worrying. I mean, that's the kind of thing I say to people is that the odds against... You know, I worked really hard for more than a year to do the Cambridge Analytica story, and, you know, if I hadn't bothered doing that, that would have never come to light. And how many more Cambridge Analyticas are there out there? Probably hundreds, you know? So... It's we desperately need to fund more journalists. We have to find new ways and we really have to ask people, please play for some news. I don't really care what news you pay for. I just think we just need more proper evidence-based reporting and we need to find money to fund journalism properly. Carol Caldwell, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week. Thank you.